the voice that doesn't overcome recording. So there you go. All right. That sound like that's a little better. All right. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, get started with our Bible study. Glad you're here this morning, and that uh, you're. Our God, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day, and thank you, Father, so much for the ability to come here and to uh, sit down with those of like precious faith and open up your word and study together. God, as we study this morning, may you open our eyes and may behold wonderful things from your word. Father, may it be that we become more fervent in spirit, more dedicated, Father, to the cause of Christ, and more uh, near to your heart because we've spent time with, uh, with your revelation of yourself. Father, thank you so much for the church that meets here. Thank you, Father, for the elders and for the deacons and for the preachers and uh, teachers and all of those who uh, labor so tirelessly uh, for the cause of Christ here in this place. We pray, God, that you'd bless those who are not here this morning because of illness. Bless them in a special way. We're mindful, especially of those, dear God, that are undergoing medical procedures or medical tests or that are uh, experiencing long bouts of suffering. If it may be, God, that we can be a good encouragement to them, may we do so, and may we reach out and uh, encourage and lift up their hands and uh, to help them, re remind them, Father, of the blessings that we have in Jesus and certainly the glorious future for the church. We're mindful of those who are not here this morning because of spiritual reasons. We pray that you would help us, God, to, uh, again, be our brother's keeper and to encourage those people and to help them, Father, as they um, as we try and help them to, uh, to write the course and to... Uh, get back in the light where they ought to be. Thank you, Father, so much for Jesus, and thank you for his perfect example of uh, sinlessness, for his perfect example, Father, of, of compassion, for his perfect example, Father, of, of uh, righteous indignation. Pray, God, that as we uh, seek to model Jesus in our, uh, in our lives and our words, may we first have his mind and uh, have a mind of humility. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, we have been studying, if you haven't uh, joined us previously, we've been studying through how to live by the book. And the first quarter dealt with primarily the process of observation, interpretation, and application. That is, how can I look at a biblical text and how can I make sense of it, starting with uh, just looking at the text or the uh, particular section or maybe the verse that I'm looking at, looking at it in the text and context, uh, interpreting it, that is, uh, overcoming those barriers of of time and of space and of communication and language and all those different things that uh, may be a hindrance to us, and then making the proper application to us as Christians. This quarter, what we've been doing primarily is taking a look at different kinds of study methods. Again, if I want to go in and I want to do a, uh, uh, a word study, how is that accomplished? We did the word study first, then we did the, uh, the character study or the bi uh, biographical study last week and the week before. And this week, we're, uh, next week, we're going to concentrate particularly on thematic Bible study. Thematic Bible study. How can I trace the chords of what the Bible says about one particular subject all the way through the Bible or maybe through a particular book, maybe through a section? Um, there are themes that are running through the Bible. And for us to be able to pl plug in and see those things and to, uh, to unearth them uh, will make our Bible study and make our, our understanding of God's Word that much richer. One man said it like this, when you have a particular section of literature and you begin to dig into that, it's almost like an uh, archaeologist that goes down into the ground and begins to find little sections of a bone. 
And as he begins to take his brushes and uh, his little picks and those things, he's carefully unearthing that bone, but he's looking and seeing within the context of this, uh, this little plot that he selected to dig in, where are the big pieces? Where are the little pieces? How does this bone fit in together all the way through? Um, one man said that there's a scarlet thread running all the way through the Bible. That is the blood of Jesus or the blood of a sacrifice. Uh, maybe one of these days we'll look at that uh, in a sermon form. But uh, you can look throughout the Bible and see different themes that are repeated over and over and over. And when you get to a particular writer that seems to emphasize themes, um, the Apostle John immediately jumps to mind. You know how John likes to use the terms dark and light and dark and light and dark and light. John likes to use the term love. John talks about uh, being the, or people talk about John as the apostle of love. And you can see that because those are common themes that John hits again and again and again and again and again throughout his writings. Um, the thematic method of Bible study attempts to isolate a theme or subject and study it with a predetermined set of biblical questions. It works well for a quick and effective period of study. If you've just got maybe a few minutes, go through and look through um, and see what John says about the word belief, um, just through the Gospel of John, and uh, maybe write those things down or print those out on a sheet of paper and take that with you and just uh, look at it and say, what is John telling me about uh, my belief and about what belief is? Does he say that it's specific to belief or is he encompassing a whole lot of other things as well? Um, it is a good way to preview a topic. And there are several thematic studies on similar themes will often uncover a larger truth found in the Bible. It is important to try and narrow down your subject when conducting the study. Realize that I can do a word study, and it's going to be in the process very similar to a theme study. If I take a word like divorce, and I want to do a word study on divorce, chances are I'm going to come up with probably the same verses as I would for a theme study. But looking at a theme study is what does the Bible say about divorce as a whole? Or how is maybe divorce used in the Gospel of Matthew? I don't know. Um, uh, how is this word used within a particular book or within a particular section? I can look at uh, broad terms like uh, prayer, faith, or love, or persecution, or the law of Moses. But doing it more narrowly says, I'm going to look at how the law of Moses is applied in the book of Galatians. Or I'm going to look at how... Um, uh, uh, faith is used in James chapter 2. I'm going to look at uh, the love of Jesus for the lost. Sure, Jesus was a man of compassion. Sure, it was that he was a man of love. But how was his love demonstrated towards this particular group of people? And again, you're asking very specific questions in order to get a, uh, get a better sense of how that word is used, again, in uh, whatever it is that you're studying. The thematic study of method of study is one of easier types of study to turn into a helpful Bible class or a devotional. For those of you that uh, maybe teach at Women of Faith or those of you that are called upon to do uh, a devotional from time to time, again, a thematic Bible study is, a, is an excellent thing to do. So let's, let's look at the how, and then we'll look at the, uh, the practical doing of it. Choose a theme. Choose a theme. Again, I want to look at the term Lamb of God all the way through the New Testament. I want to look at um, how faith, hope, and love are used within uh, the New Testament. I want to look at sacrifice throughout the Old Testament and see uh, what the sacrifices were and how they were used and, and what they were used for. I want to choose a theme that I'm going to follow throughout a particular section or maybe throughout the whole, uh, the whole Bible. 
list all verses you intend to examine. And again, you may try and leave some out or just uh, set some aside to say, this verse seems to concentrate on the theme of love. This verse really seems to encapsulate um, the nature of God. And so I want to grab onto this verse. And I'm going to hold on to it tightly. I'm going to put it over here in my list of verses to study. And so as I get a list of different ones that I'm going to look at, that's the way it's going to be. All right. Um, Select verses that appear to be most important for your theme. Usually five to ten verses unless you're trying to discover what all the Bible says about a particular theme. Decide on what questions you will use. Try to use no more than three. Again, the objective is to get a clear picture of what you're, uh, what you're looking at. Sometimes you can do an excellent thematic study with only one question. What are the things God hates? What are the things that God hates? Sin, absolutely. Divorce, what else? Lying tongue, pride. All of those things are absolutely true. Looking at the verses that talk about it, I think that you'd probably be uh, hard pressed to find a better verse to start out with than Proverbs chapter six, verses six through nine. Right? Uh, open up to those, or six sixteen through nineteen rather. Proverbs chapter six, verses sixteen to nineteen. And a lot of these things that you've uh, just listed are absolutely in the core of what we're, what we're looking at here in Proverbs chapter 6. Note what Solomon says. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. There's seven things right off the bat that we can look at with regard to what God hates. Consequently, the book of Proverbs is a great book to start to talk about themes. Um, when you find somebody that maybe does a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Proverbs, it may be more helpful for people when you're looking at it in a Bible class to do a thematic study. What does the book of Proverbs say about our friends? You know, um, what does the book of Proverbs say about a virtuous woman? What does the book of Proverbs say about an immoral woman? What does the book of Proverbs say about honesty? What does the book of Proverbs say about um, uh, the way we use our mouths or the way we use our tongues? You can see how this would be a rich study because here in soundbite form from the book of Proverbs, you can get a great sense of what God thinks about it, what it's going to lead to, and the wisdom of how we use or how we don't use uh, whatever it is that he's talking about here in the book of Proverbs. But again, looking and asking good questions is, uh, is key to a thematic study. What are the things that are going to endure? That's the second question here under number three. What are some things that will endure? Absolutely. Uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, Danny mentioned faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Asking a good question. Why is that? Or why is it that love is going to be the, or is the greatest of these? What else is going to endure? What? Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Okay. Um, was First Peter 1, is that right? Uh, what else? How about Jesus? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord... We know that the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90. What else? Our souls. Our souls are eternal. They will go on after it is that this physical life is over. 
Absolutely. Um, what are the traits of a fool in Proverbs? Um, fool says all that's in his heart, right? Wise man ref uh, refrains his tongue. Uh, fool rejects, under uh, rejects understanding, rejects wisdom. Uh, the rod and rebuke are, are wasted on the fool. Um, there's a number of things that, again, Proverbs says about uh, the fool. What brings poverty in Proverbs? What types of things will lead us to the poorhouse? Um, how we use our money is a common theme of the book of Proverbs. And there's no reason, no wonder why, because the book of Proverbs deals primarily with how we conduct ourselves here in this life, particularly our relationships with other people, um, but how that's going to affect the course of our life and certainly um, what's going to bring us Proverbs, or what's going to bring us poverty, rather. Sometimes you're not going to find an answer to all of the questions that you ask just in one verse. If you don't find answers to your questions in any verses, don't change the verses, change the questions. Um, what is God trying to teach me about who I am and what's God trying to teach me about his nature and my relationship to him? Um, ask your questions of each reference and write the answers. After that, you're going to draw some conclusions. Go back and summarize the answers to each questions and organize into study form if desired, and then apply the study to your life. That's the how. Uh, questions or comments, observations, anything anybody wants to add at this point uh, to what we've talked about at the procedure of a thematic study. All right. As they say, the proof is in the pudding, so let's, uh, let's do one, okay? It's a whole lot easier to, uh, to do it rather than just to talk about it. So, what Jesus expects of a disciple, if you flip over your sheet there, this is what we're going to look at. This is the theme that we've chosen, what Jesus expects to, of his disciple. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let's look at that one first. We'll look at the context, and then we'll come back and, uh, and make some observations about it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? It occurs to me that this is in the middle of uh, what we call the limited commission. Uh, if you would jump back all the way to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, uh, it's the sending of the ones that uh, Jesus had given the 12 uh, disciples that uh, he gave them, verse 1, uh, power to cast over, uh, out unclean spirits, uh, to heal all kinds of sicknesses, and uh, heal all kinds of diseases. And then it lists the 12 there who were given these, uh, these power. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, and he commanded them, saying, as he says what he says here in verses 24 and 25, this is a good uh, indicator, a good place to start when we talk about what Jesus expects of his disciples. All right, because he says a disciple is not above his teacher nor servant above his master. Look over at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Start in verse 26. And catch the context, start in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bring his, uh, bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Rest after he's laid the foundation is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man was, uh, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still away off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Interestingly enough, look at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. It's kind of a contrast or a more specific application of what he said back in 1425. There were great multitudes who were following, but now... Here's people that are actually wanting to take him up on his offer of being his disciples. And chapter 15 begins with um, the tax collectors and the sinners drawing near and the Pharisees beginning to speak against this man, saying he receives sinners and eats with them. So even though there may be still great multitudes that are following Jesus, you're going to find people that are drawing near to hear and others that are criticizing of those who are trying to draw near to hear. Something to think about. Um, we already looked at verse uh, 14, chapter 14, verse 33, which of, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Famous one from John chapter eight, please. John chapter eight. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Look at John 13, verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. What does Jesus expect of his disciples? What does he want of those who follow him? What does he demand of those who follow him? Jesus said, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One last one, John 15 and verse 8. John 15 and verse 8. Again, where does the word disciple occur, and what is Jesus saying about being a disciple? By this my Father is glorified, John 15, verse 8, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Here's some questions that we might ask about this section. Number one, what does the Lord expect of his disciple? That's our theme. That's, our theme. that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of. Um, what does the Lord expect of his disciple? Or, uh, second question is, what are some deal breakers that cause someone not to be a disciple of Jesus? What are some things that are absolutely going to uh, turn us away from him or keep us from following him like we ought to? Love of the world, pride. All right. Love of the world, pride. Jump back to the first section and let's answer from the first verse. All right. Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25. Disciples not above his teacher nor a servant like his or above his master. 
It's enough for his disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? What does the Lord expect of his disciple? Or what's expected of a disciple? There's an understanding that we're not going to rise above who we're following. All right? Um, you get somebody that's a very narrow-minded teacher, a teacher that, uh, uh, that you know, looks on your abilities and, and, you know, is trying to teach you things. And this is just secular. This is not talking about anything religious. But somebody that looks down on you maybe and you're following this person and you're listening to them there's going to come occasion where you're going to be like your teacher, but you're never really going to rise above that for so long as you're following after that teacher. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to be like Jesus. If we're truly following him, we're not going to rise above him, but we're going to be uh, like, well, like the one we're following. A servant's not going to grow beyond his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? We're following Jesus, and there were occasions where the Jews said, he has a demon. He's, you know, uh, he's, uh, he's got an unclean spirit. That's the only reason why he's saying what he's saying. Well, if we're following Jesus, what can we expect as well? Those Christians, they're out of touch with reality. Those Christians, they're just... I don't know what they're thinking, but people are going to deride us the same way that they derided Jesus. We can expect that as a disciple, and we can understand that that's going to be a necessary consequence of following after the one who, the one who works disciples of. Yes, sir. Accusations of false witnesses. Accusations of false witnesses, you know, that uh, come against us even this day. Um, Jesus had people that stood up and tried to impugn his character. You know, this man said that he was going to, to destroy the temple and tear it down and rebuild it, right? Um, people that would come and, uh, and just falsely, blatantly accuse him. Are there people that falsely accuse us? Wasn't one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, so, for so that they did to the uh, prophets who were before you. There's times when we suffer as Christians. There's times when we suffer for the name of Jesus. And as we faithfully follow him, we can expect that. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. First Timothy or 2 Timothy 3.12. And we know that that's coming. What does Jesus expect of his disciples? The suffering is going to come, and it's going to come because of him. We're going to receive the same treatment as the teacher. Is there anything that's in Matthew 10, 24, and 25 that talks about being maybe a deal breaker? Not directly, but maybe indirectly? What are the deal breakers that might cause somebody not to be a disciple of Jesus? Things to do at home. Okay, maybe not being a servant, maybe not actually following the teachings of Jesus, um, maybe not being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
I don't know, are all those things maybe implied in uh, Matthew 10, 24, and 25? Something worth thinking about. Actually, in the context, again, the limited commission, Jesus says three times, do not fear. Verse 26, the very next verse, he says, therefore, do not fear them. There's nothing that's covered that's not going to be revealed and hidden that's not going to be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but uh, cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to both destroy body and soul in hell, or soul and body in hell. Um, do not fear, therefore, you're more value than the sparrows. It seems like the fear, fear is one of those emotional responses that comes with persecution. Oh, no. <laughs> The American government may take away our tax-exempt status as a church of Christ. Um, oh, no. Uh, Christians may be labeled at some time for hate speech because we're upholding a righteous standard, an absolute standard. There may become a time where the government tries to come in and tell us, well, listen, you can't preach that anymore because that's, that's hateful. That uh, makes somebody feel bad. Well, if they called the one who was master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call that of his household? Folks, we will suffer persecution. You know, we're suffering persecution now, but uh, that's, that's part of following Jesus. Look at the next one, Luke 14, 26 to 28. What does Jesus expect from his disciple looking at these verses? Put Jesus before anybody else. All right? Uh, practical application of that. Who does he say that we put Jesus before? It's those closest to us, isn't it? Mother, father, husband, wife, uh, all of those people, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life also. If you don't have Christ in that first position... You can't be his disciple. Is it a form of idolatry to hold to mom and dad's religion more than Jesus? I I know my mama, I know my daddy. They lived forever, and they uh, or they lived for years and years and years, and they were always faithful to church, and they always went to this particular denomination. But this denomination teaches error. And you're looking and seeing that here's Christ and here's what Jesus teaches. And there are some people that I've studied with that said, listen, my mama couldn't be right. My daddy or my mama couldn't be wrong. My daddy couldn't be wrong. So I uh, grew up in this particular religious group and I'm going to die as a member of this particular religious group. Folks, that's a form of idolatry. If I'm not looking at Jesus and saying, I want to follow Jesus and him, nobody else. I want to be his disciple and nobody else's, regardless of what mom or your daddy did, then that's my commitment. That's what the Lord expects of us as his disciples. We hate the family and life, that is to love less. We bear our cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean? Verse 27 of Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. Several things happen at the, at the harder you try to teach others, the uh, more. Most
hoping somebody that wants to hear the truth, and that makes it all worthwhile, but not that often. All right. Morris is saying as we stand up for Christ and as we follow Christ, we're going to have uh, enemies that are made because of that cross. Uh, is the cross a pleasant thing? It's not. It was an instrument of shame. It was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of death. And Jesus would say in another context, he, uh, he who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. When I'm following Jesus and I'm walking in his steps and I'm bearing that cross, you're talking about something that's a heavy load to bear. You're talking about something that uh, every day I'm going to have to walk in his steps and realize that it's not easy. It's not always easy. But as I faithfully follow Jesus, I realize that he's leading us not only to the best possible places, but he also promises the abundant life here and now. Um, there's a peace and a uh, hope that comes from bearing a cross daily. And if we take that cross and we say, you know what, <laughs> that thing's heavy, or give me a smaller cross, or I'll just wear one of those little things around my neck, those little crosses, and you know that'll be my cross to bear, then, then we're not truly following Jesus. Yes, sir? The beginning of verse 28, they help to understand 27. Right. And this is one of the places that uh, Alan said this is uh, verse 27, explained verse 26. For, we understand a for as an explanation word. For, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down and first consider, uh, count the cost and consider whether he has enough to finish it. Whenever I study with young people at camp and they say, Mr. Andy, I want to be, uh, I want to become a Christian. I want to be baptized. This is usually one of the first places I'll take them to and say, have you counted the cost? Sure, it's easy right in here and right now at camp to decide, you know, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but let's count the cost. When you get home, what changes are going to be enacted in your life that shows that you're truly following Jesus? Let's talk about your friends. Are your friends a good influence on you or are your friends a bad influence on you? What do you do with your friends? You go down and you uh, uh, create havoc down local 7-Eleven? Do, uh, uh, do you go out and, and, and you know, torment other people? Are you gossips? Are you, um, here's the thing. Part of counting the cost is realizing some of those relationships need to be severed because you're not going to run with those people the same way that you used to. That's uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. So much so that those people are going to turn on you and say, what's wrong with Andy? He used to go down, he used to party with us every Friday night, and now he's not doing that anymore. He used to go out to the, to the lake with us on Sunday morning and go fishing with us. He doesn't do that anymore. Why not? Because he's trying to follow Jesus. He says they count it strange that you don't run with them in the same excess of rioting. Here's some things that you need to count the cost. Let's talk about the music you listen to. Let's talk about the movies you watch. Let's talk about uh, the things you read. Let's talk about your habits on the internet. Let's talk about those things because have you truly counted what it takes to follow Jesus? Have you truly thought about the substantive life-changing things that you need to do in order to put those things off so that you're going to fully clothe yourself and adorn yourself in the doctrine of Christ? This is all Colossians chapter 3. You put off the old man of sin. You put on the new man who is renewed in the, according to the image of the one who's created him. And as we put on Christ, as we put off malice and deceit and lying and lust and passions, all of those things that he lists there, 
we want to know that we're seeking the things which are above, which uh, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. That's the way I want to behave. That also means that I'm going to treat people differently. I'm going to bear one another's burdens. I'm not going to, I'm going to be loving and forgiving towards those people. I'm going to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. All of those things are part of faithfully following Jesus. There are things to put off, but there are things to take up. I've got to take up that cross and I've got to faithfully follow him. Have I counted the cost of what it takes to be his disciple? He uses that illustration, but he also uses the one about the king who uh, doesn't sit down and first consider. He's counting the cost to find out if with 10,000 people, this is verse 31, he's able to, uh, to, to um, ward off the one who's coming against him with 20,000. Um, so likewise, verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's the, what's the deal breaker? What's the deal breaker? Being willing to give up everything that you think is important. I mean, not give it up necessarily, but to make it clarity <coughs> in your life and Jesus in worship first. Refusing to bear the burdens for the Lord's sake in the first example. And the second one, holding back. Um, <laughs> all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give, except for except for the juicy gossip that we share around the lunchroom table. Oh, I can't give that up. I'm not going to give that up. All to Jesus I surrender, except the habits of my internet surfing. All to Jesus I surrender, except this tongue that I've used for so long to tell lies because that's so much easier than having to face up to telling the truth. All to Jesus, I surrender. Do we truly surrender all to Jesus? Part of that is taking up our cross and bearing our burden and realizing that, you know, the choices of following Christ means that I don't behave the same way that I used to. And it's, Hard bearing and changing habits, changing habits of speech, changing habits of thought, changing habits of manner of life, about feet, where they go. But as I walk and I follow Jesus, First uh, John chapter 1, as I walk in the light as he is in the light, I know his blood cleanses me. I know there's grace for when I fall and whenever I'm, uh, I don't behave like I ought to. But I'm going to get back up, I'm going to pick that cross back up, and I'm going to keep on following because that's what I have committed to. Right. Uh, look at John 8, 31, 32. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is the expectation that the Lord has of his disciples? John 8, 31 and 32. Abiding in what? Not just him, but what's the specific phrase? You abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The word abide would be an excellent, also an excellent study from John. In fact, if you just want to start out as a thematic study, just start in John, because you're going to find a whole lot of thematic words and, and phrases and characteristics that uh, John has that are, that are worth studying. And in fact, next week, uh, we're going to look at the I am statements of Jesus uh, from the book of John. 
um, you want to get a head start, look at the seven great I am statements, and uh, we'll come back and make some applications about each one of those in our thematic study uh, practicum. Um, abiding in the words of Jesus. What does that mean? Studying the New Testament, seeing what he said. All right, that's part of it. Yeah, what else? Not adding to, not taking away. Recognizing that the word is going to be our judge. That's from John chapter 12, verse 48 through 50. What else? Doing it, living it, living in it. Abide in my word. Most of you have houses that you abide in. Right? You know the ins and the outs. You stay in them. And as you're in the house, you know what's going on usually in the house. When we stay in the word of Christ, when we live in the word of Christ or abide in it, we're going to consider what's going on around, certainly in the context, certainly in the world context. We're going to spend time living in the word of God and recognizing that's going to change us from the inside out. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's Colossians 3.16. Dwell in the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you in all wisdom. I want to be a person who, like Philippians 4 verse 8, who thinks on the things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good rapport and those things that are praiseworthy. If there's anything virtuous, anything praiseworthy, meditate on those things. Let those things run around in your mind. Reason I think that a lot of people are not as spiritual as they ought to is because they're letting the wrong things into their minds. They're letting the wrong messages into their minds, so much so that there's no room for the word of Christ. If we abide in the word of Christ, if we let his word abide in us, then we're going to be changed from the inside out. How would Jesus expect me to respond at the lunchroom table when people are gossiping all around me? How would Jesus expect me to respond whenever my boss comes and gets to my face and blows up at me for no particular reason? How would Jesus expect me to respond to that driver that just cut me off in traffic? I know none of those situations apply to anybody in here, but you understand that there is there's a thought mechanism. There's a thought process that goes on within each one of us. I recently downgraded from Windows 10 back to Windows 7 on one of my computers. I, I, I just can't get used to Windows 10. I don't know why, but the operating system just has a whole lot of bugs to it, and it doesn't work as well as I don't think Windows 7 does. I know I've got until 2020 to upgrade back to Windows 10, but hopefully by then they'll have it just working a little bit better. My operating system... I know how to work in Windows 7. I know the ins and outs. I know that when I run programs through Windows 7, they're going to run 99% of the time. They're going to run and they're going to run well. What operating system am I running with? There's a worldly operating system, if you like, or there is a godly operating system. There is an operating system according to the wisdom of this world, that's James chapter 3, or an operating system with regard to heavenly wisdom. Letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly in all wisdom. Abiding in the word of Christ means I'm changing my thought process from the inside out. I want to filter everything I do and say and think through Christ. What would Jesus say about what I'm about to say? What would Jesus say about what I'm about to do? What would Jesus say about 
the way that I'm supposed to behave towards my Christian brothers and sisters. And then I run the program. I run based upon what the operating system is. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Where does the freedom come from? The freedom comes from God, comes from Christ, but it comes from living a life that's pleasing in his sight. It comes from a life that I don't have to worry about the consequences of my own sin because I'm operating with the right operating system. Isn't it true that you deal with a whole lot more baggage and consequences and difficulties because we choose sometimes to operate with this worldly operating system than we do with a godly operating system? Again, please understand the metaphor. It's because we think with worldly wisdom that it's okay that I'm going to tell this lie. Well, what happens whenever somebody calls you on the lie? You have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. What happens with that? You have to tell another lie, and before too long, you've lost all credibility, and now you're trying to rebuild back a trust that's hard that you've damaged based upon you operating like this. Freedom comes from living a life and realizing that I can live my life openly and honestly and and good conscience before God and men because I'm thinking and I'm behaving the way that God wants me to. Janice, do you have something? It's basically going to say the same thing, except as I get older, I just realize more and more how being obedient to our Lord and trying to be like him, like you said, it just brings a better life for us and freedom to us and a lot less concern and worry. Absolutely, absolutely. He is, absolutely. And when you look at a book like Galatians, it talks about freedom in Christ. You know, we're not held to outward, you know, uh, ritualistic type of, uh, of, of uh, symbolic things to show that we're with him. But from the inside out, we're circumcised from the heart. We're people who are following him and... You know, as we let the fruit of the Spirit grow into our lives from abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, we have bared out in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What does He say? Against such there is no law. These are the things that are going to lead us to that abundant life that Jesus promised and living our lives in a way that we don't have to be ashamed of our conduct. Something to think about. Um, John, we're almost out of time, so you can look at John 13, 34, and 35, and John 15, and verse 8. After we look at all these verses, we draw a conclusion. All true disciples will become like Jesus, even to the point of suffering for the same reasons he did. What Jesus expects is that all of us carefully count the cost, be willing to bear difficult burdens, and to forsake all that they have without refusing to hold anything back. True disciples will abide in the words of Jesus, bear fruits, and love one another. If I refuse to do any one of these things, it's going to cause a person to stop following Jesus. You may be following him in name, you may be following him in some aspects, but being a true disciple, being a true follower is, uh, is, is not, not what the result is going to be. So the application is, and you may draw your own application. I've been struggling to choose between going to the family reunion this Sunday, meaning that I'm going to miss worship and attending services with God's people. What does Jesus expect me to do as a disciple of him? What's the choice that I have to make? This relationship that is toxic to me, 
I know that I've been friends with this person for years and years and years, but I know this person, all they're going to do is drag me down, regardless of the fact that I've tried to encourage them, I've tried to help them to not uh, not be so negative and stop being so pessimistic and stop being so down on Christianity. What does Jesus expect me to do based upon my commitment to him? Folks, it is a commitment. Discipleship is absolutely commitment. I have chosen this life. I have said he is my Lord. I have said he is my king and my master. As his servant, how do I behave on a daily basis? Am I abiding in his word? Am I faithfully following him? Am I striving to love one another just as he loved me? Am I trying to bear fruit or am I bearing fruit because of following him? All of those are good questions of a disciple. Take your sheet, the Magic Bible study, and do a study of the I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And next week, Lord willing, we'll get back together and we will talk about those things together. Thank you all very much for your attention and we will begin our worship here in just a few minutes.